Fellow Americans, I'm pleased to inform you that we have just signed legislation that will end heresy forever. We begin bombing in five, four, three, two. <laughs> hey, everybody, welcome to Church History for Chumps, and we are the uh, newly copyright infringing hosts of, uh, of our podcast. This is John Simon. And I'm Thomas Duell, and we're uh, we're pleased to pleased to have you with us. Yeah, glad we're hanging out. Yeah, tell me how you doing, man. I'm doing pretty good. good. Weather's starting to get pretty pretty choice. Yeah, in Tucson, a little crisp even. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Was it around this time that we started recording season one last year? Mm, probably. Yeah. 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 We've been recording for a year. Oh wow! We should have done like a little anniversary thing or something like that. Yeah, it's not too late. We're still good. That's probably too late. Mm. <laughs> well, two, hey, two year anniversary. Yeah, yeah, two year. They, they say two years the really important one. What is that like? The wood anniversary, <laughs> copper uh, something. Yeah, yeah. How many do you do you and Steffi actually follow those? No, but we did this cool thing at our wedding where we had these jars that people could put like notes in for our. There was a jar for our honeymoon, one year anniversary, two year. Mm-hmm. five year and then i think it's like 10 and then 20 oh and so like we still have jars that we haven't opened yet for yeah. the 10 and 20 year anniversaries yeah that uh we'll have notes that people left us i'm bummed that we weren't friends when you got married because i would have brought my own jar that would have been like thousand years <laughs> <laughs> and it would just be like welcome to the future you can only have those at mormon weddings <laughs> oh dang <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Hey, well, hey, we are going to be talking through um, some more heresies. We have just we, we kicked off our heresy series, our heresy series, heresy series, series. We talked about Arianism uh, last week, and that was that was oodles of fun. Mm-hmm. That was oodles of fun. And so, you know, we were kind of talking before this and we thought, you know, let's just smash out the four core Christological heresy. What's a Christological heresy, John? Oh my gosh, that's a fantastic question. A Christological heresy is essentially a heresy that uh, says something that is wrong about Jesus's identity, his divinity, his humanity, etc. So, um, Arianism, probably the most famous of the Christological heresies, said that Jesus was a person, but he could not have possibly been divine. And the one that we're going through today is going to say, pretty much the exact opposite of that so yeah christological heresy is just something that says something wrong about jesus which is a big deal because jesus is pretty important to christianity some even say he's in the name (laughs) so yeah i like it but today so today we're going to talk about uh somebody's technically got two names uh the the og name for it is docetism or docetism or like i don't know docetism I don't know. It you got got a got a docetism, docetism. I feel like people know what you're talking about. I hope so, man, because I'm probably going to say it every way that I possibly can. But uh, docetism is the heresy which denies the full humanity of Jesus, and uh, 
Docetism is actually kind of a generic term uh, because, you know, there was no one named like docus or anything like that. Uh, docetism, the, the word comes from the Greek verb dokane, which means to seem, uh, which kind of holds to this idea that Jesus only seems to be human, that he was definitely d- a divine being, but that in terms of his humanity, he wasn't quite a human. Uh, it was kind of a fuzzy belief for the first few centuries of church history, and then it really kicked off under this dude named Apollinarius, who was a uh, priest in Laodicea, um, and he uh, basically kind of came up with this idea in response to Arianism, believe it or not. You know, mm-hmm. last last time we talked about how Arianism was kind of this disjointed response to modalism. And once again, we have a new heresy sprouting out of the soil of trying not to be another heresy. Mm. So let's... uh. Let's explore. So, I mean, this is going to be like the classic seesaw scenario, right? Where yeah, trying to respond to something, we're overcorrecting in a different direction. It's it's the pendulum, yeah. And I think what's interesting is like, I think that when you and a lot of the a lot of the church fathers who addressed this said the same thing. They said the problem is you're you're trying to. You like kind of manhandle philosophy over Jesus when in reality, all you need to be doing is seeking Christ. You don't need to be seeking like the rationale for Christ because something again that we love to say about our Orthodox brothers and sisters, they literally call like they call it the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the Eucharist. Like they're fully aware that they're not going to figure out the weird paradoxes of Christianity. They just kind of got to let those two things coexist. And if you try too hard to force a solution, you're probably going to end up in muddy waters. Mm. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's get into our boy, um, Apollinarius. So Apollinarius, which I think is a, it's a pretty solid name. Mm-hmm. Uh, also last five letters of his name. Uh Oh yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a little Easter egg that God was <laughs> like, look out for this guy. Um, but so Apollinarius was, I, and I was actually wrong before he wasn't a priest in Laodicea. He was a bishop. Uh, if you remember Laodicea was one of the churches that Jesus had a letter for in the book of revelation. Hmm. I believe it was the, the lukewarm church. Okay. Um, which makes sense because Apollinarius thought he was spitting. Am I right? <laughs> so, uh, but really he was just getting spit out. Um, tough crowd. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> really, really tough crowd. <laughs> oh, man. And so, uh, so he was the Bishop of Laodicea. Uh, he was born in uh, the year 310, died in 390. And, uh, and he was actually, you know, pretty, pretty well received. His father was a dude by the name of Apollinarius, the, uh, elder, and he was Apollinarius, the younger, um, there I like was the whole elder younger thing so much better than like the junior senior. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like first and second, like, okay. Especially well, if you're the elderly an attack on me. So yeah, you heard me <laughs> right, dude. John, the younger, I don't know. That's like eternal subordination. What happens if you have a third I one? I think it's just really cool if you're the elder. Okay. So would it go elder, younger, youngest mm. if there was a third? Maybe elder and then second, third. But if you're the oh, first, gosh. then John the Elder's cool. Yeah. Well, was your, yeah, because your dad's name wasn't Thomas, so you've got nothing mm. to lose here. Yeah, I'm actually Thomas the Elder. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, well, I guess. You don't you don't even have a son named Thomas yet. Uh, You're just, uh, yeah, I guess. I'm John the Younger now. I don't like that. Sorry. So anyway, he and his pops were, were pretty well respected in their region. Uh, there was this cool thing they were known for when uh, the Emperor Julian the Apostate, um, who actually was an emperor, I think, two or three down after Constantine was ruling. Um, he was one of the last, I think the last pagan emperor of Rome who would rule um, after Constantine converts to Christianity. He passes this rule because he's, you know, considered Julian the apostate, so not a Christian, um, forbidding Christians from uh, teaching the classics. And so what they did, what... Uh, what Apollinarius and his dad did was they basically kind of rendered parts of scripture into classic literary form so they could continue to teach the Bible without breaking the law. So, uh, so they're very educated dudes. He's obviously very clever. Um, he was a, he was a sharp guy. Um, so at that point, um, and, and then, you know, when the Arian controversy was going down, which if you haven't listened to our last episode was essentially when this guy named Arius kind of lights the church on fire by dividing everyone between, um, this theology of was Jesus actually divine or was he just a human that kind of had the special sauce but wasn't God himself um, when the Arian controversy was going on that Athanasius was involved in um, Apollinarius was actually on the right side of history as we love to say he was a he was a hardcore um, Athanasian that actually was good friends with Athanasius during this time so uh, you know you thought this guy's this guy's got some got some good stuff going but eventually Apollinarius kind of comes up with this idea where again he's he's swinging so hard from the pendulum where he's really trying not to be an Arian <coughs> Excuse me. We'll get that edited out. Uh, he's trying so hard not to be an Aryan that he kind of swings too hard and ends up forming this whole new problem that kind of fell into this realm of docetism. And so he had this idea. Uh, have you ever heard of this like dichotomy versus trichotomy before, Thomas? In like in regards to this topic? In regards to uh, a Christian view of humanity. Mm, no, I don't think so. Yeah. So I hadn't before either, but it's basically this idea that you either believe in humanity in dichotomous forms, which is two, or trichotomous, which is three. Mm -hmm. So most of us, I think, naturally would say that the human being is composed of a human body and a human soul. Like it is our body that, you know, is everything physical about us and our soul is the, you know, the the breath of God, the the spiritual thing that either connects or is disconnected from God. Okay. Um Apollinarius was a trichotomist, which means that he believed that the human body or the human being was composed of three parts, a physical body, and then a lower soul that makes us living creatures and then a higher soul or a spirit that is equivalent to the rational mind that humans possess. So he would say hmm. we are body, we are soul, and we are spirit. We're three things composed. And so um, hmm. he basically said that um, how do we make sense of Jesus being God and human? Oh, well, 
let's say that Jesus had the body of a human being and he had the uh, living uh, living creatureness of a human being, but he didn't have that higher rational mind that humans possess. That was replaced by the logos. Interesting. Okay. So he basically saw. I mean, an op- and puzzle pieces around. Kinda, sorta, and he tried to make sense of the conflict between Christ's divinity and humanity by hollowing out a hole in his humanity and then filling that with his divinity. Mm. So it's kind of like, I mean, this is the image that I've kind of had doing all my reading of this. It's kind of like Jesus was a divine hand in a human glove. Like uh, we were, his his human state was kind of hollowed out. And, And the big thing was this, it was the the problem with the passages like the one in Hebrews and several throughout the Gospels that identified Jesus learning or Jesus growing in righteousness. Like he would have a huge problem with that. He would say, no, because Jesus was divine, there was nothing he didn't actually know, even though Jesus explicitly said that there were things that he did not know. Mm. And Jesus couldn't learn if he was divine, if he was the Holy Logos. So he's kind of taking issue with these things that look almost imperfect in his portrayal as a incarnate human being. Hmm. To me, this seems like, and I don't know if you're going to get into this, really what this boils down to is what happened when God uh, breathed life into Adam Mm-hmm. in the garden, right? Like, what does it actually mean to be made in the image of God? Right. Is there something... Because his... I mean, first of all, that's like seems like a super Greek way to conceive of the soul, you know, where Dude, it's like there's two different types of souls. Yes. I think I would say that there's different types of souls in a sense and that, like, I look at my dog and, like, there's something that animates my dog uh in a different way than the chair that i'm sitting in sure um but there's a fundamentally different type of uh soul between me and and my dog in that i'm made in the image of god Mm -hmm. um and a son of adam yeah uh and my dog is not yes and you you hit something on the head which is that this is a super greek way of thinking about this because if arianism really took off with the uh early believers that had kind of a jewish uh kind of a way of approaching uh what what is it theism like if if the jews really struggled with this idea that god could be a human the greeks had a big problem with the idea that um kind of kind of the same like they were like no humanity's gross like mm. if jesus was god that means that he could not have been fully human mm. because to be human is degrading and god doesn't god wouldn't degrade himself mm-hmm. and so yes it was a very um, and I mean, this is the stuff that we see in Gnosticism, like something that is material is inherently kind of icky and to be spiritual is the better of the two. So I think that Apollinarius kind of thought the idea that Jesus was a being that uh, could be weak, needed to learn, had blind spots in what he knew. That was embarrassing. That was not something that uh, a representative of the Most High should embody. Which means that we have to we have to kind of make these things work. So clearly, this human part of him wasn't real, and it was filled in with 
divinity instead. You know what's interesting is I think that there's still shreds of this in uh, Roman Catholic Orthodoxy because it's kind of the argument behind the Immaculate Conception. Mm-hmm. That, like, God, there's no way that a holy God could have um, been uh, conceived in the womb of a sinful woman. Oh. And so, therefore, Mary is sinless. Yeah. And it's like, that's kind of actually the same argument mm-hmm. there. Um, it is kind of like putting, creating a problem and instead of living in mystery, just forcing a solution, which... I don't know. I've never spoken to somebody about immaculate conception, but I mean, from my Protestant angle, that's that seems pretty. Yeah, pretty well, true. it's not wrestling both of those issues, but docetism or uh, the immaculate conception. I think are missing a really key component of the gospel, which is that God is bridging the gap in between exactly. His holiness and sinful man. Yeah. So, um, so Apollinarius kind of starts uh, preaching this stuff even before he gets appointed bishop of uh, Laodicea. He's been preaching this stuff, and so uh, really, what's happening is the Arian controversy is still going on. I think that Nicaea has passed at this point in history, but like they're still cleaning up the mess, and so essentially, what happens is um, he continues to teach this stuff. Several local synods happen, which are kind of like like small scale gatherings like they're not full on councils where they're inviting everybody to come together which was what happened at Nicaea but they're kind of getting small regional groups to come together to say hey we got to figure some stuff out and at several local synods they are like flabbergasted they're like this is such a bad theology mm. you can't remove the fact that Jesus was a full 100% human because that does kill the gospel and so they say this is not okay you cannot teach this and he kind of goes off doing his own thing because he just like Arius was shut down by the local church and he continued to do do whatever he wanted which I think is important to reflect on that because it can be really easy to think that heresies are just, um, I don't know, uh, just just being wrong, but but having really good intentions. Like the fact that historically these dudes didn't just come up with the wrong view, but they were unanimously opposed by the Church of Christ, and they continued to keep thinking, "Well, I'm right, so I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing." Mm-hmm. Like that kind of, you know, that doesn't reflect uh, a very a very humble spirit in them as teachers and as and as ambassadors of the church. So this guy was at the first Council of Nicaea and was a part of all that. He loved it. Yeah, he was a big time. He like I said, he was friends with Athanasius. Huh. So he he was uh, so he was opposed he, to Arianism. He had some like further development in his theology after that, or he was just kind of like kind of sitting <laughs> sitting quiet and ignoring because they made it really clear. Well, because the thing was, you're you're right, but I think that an Apollinarian view is a hundred percent opposed to Arianism, but it's almost like uh, I don't know. It's like a it's like a neo Nazi like talking to a moderate person about like an environmental terrorist and being like yo those environmental dudes are crazy right and they're both like right <laughs> like you're you're so far on the other side of the spectrum but you're you're still you're still off just in a different way yeah um i'm just kind of looking at like the nicene creed though and it's like i don't know how you could hold to his view if you were able to affirm that creed. Yeah. Okay, how so? What do you what do you see in there? Um 
Oh, just the whole became man, you know? Like, <laughs> they don't, they don't, uh, they're not, I guess, well, I guess, I guess I can understand where he would say, yeah, he became man, but then he goes on well, to continue to divide and this is another categories thing. of the soul. Apollinarius would say, uh, the council of Nicaea was solid, but man's not the best word to use. Flesh is a better word to mm. use. And so he's, because again, he's, I don't think he's trying to stick out like a sore thumb. I think he's trying to build a theology of Christ that answers the Arian question like successfully. And I think that everyone looks at him like, no, you're overcorrecting way too hard right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he would look at that and say, well, man's just kind of a sloppy translation. We should really say that he became flesh because he did. He became a human body. He became a living creature. Mm-hmm. He did not become a rational reasoning mind. Ah. Um, and that's that's his thing. So interestingly, and this is maybe one of my favorite parts about this story, is that uh, so the church at large kind of realizes, well, crap, this now we've got another heresy to deal with on top of Arianism. The good thing was that Apollinarianism was never going to be as big because of a few reasons. One, uh, he was not. He was not the bishop of a big C of the church like Arius was in Alexandria. Uh, Laodicea was not as culturally like kind of uh, much of a hub as Mm. Alexandria would be. Um, he also just didn't have the juice, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a, he wasn't a great communicator. He wasn't like a charming kind of likable guy that Arius was. He, he was just kind of a guy with a, kind of with an interesting view. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, there's like this meeting where Athanasius is like, look, man, my, my heart and soul, my mission is to kill Arianism. That's what I'm here for. And so in step, the Cappadocian fathers mm. who are, uh, Gregory of Ni- Nazianzus, Basil, the great and Basil of Caesarea and Basil's a solid name, man. Yeah. We're going to get into the Cappadocian fathers one of these days. Oh yeah. And so basically those three, but specifically Gregory of, Na- of Nazianzus and basil of Caesarea uh, are kind of the ones who just take to like ripping this argument to shreds and uh and they so athanasius tag teamed you know no WWE he kind of he kind of let it go yeah he 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 tagged him in and then they went in and just you know smacked him with the tombstone pile driver <laughs> yeah and so uh yeah but a, a big part of what they what they said which i thought was interesting and i think it was gregory that came up with this argument which is the quote that what has not been assumed has not been healed so essentially mm. if christ could not Ooh, that's fully good. enter the human condition then he could not heal and honestly it's the same problem that arianism has it's that christ needed to embody the bridge that was to be built if christ was not fully divine he could not restore humanity back to god if christ was not fully human he could not restore god back to humanity Mm -hmm. so essentially if jesus was not both then he could not reconcile both to each other yeah it seems like it would be um it would be denying the fulfillment of the promise in the garden if a true descendant of eve that uh, yes. did not crush the serpent's Oh, dude, I dude, the more I think about this heresy, the more just theological just alarms go off my head. Because I also thought, like, if um, 
if Jesus was just, uh, like I said, a divine hand in a in a physical glove, then why on earth was his glorified body not just a spirit? Mm-hmm. Because if it was degrading for God Himself to exist in a physical to to exist in a physical presence then why would he after having conquered death and defeated all of the evil powers why would his body of glory and of great celebration still be a physical body Mm. like it doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. um and so yeah so they they kind of uh they kind of take this dude to town uh he uh, they they hold a second um, ecumenical council at, in Constantinople in 381, where Apollinarianism is explicitly called out as a heresy. Um, Apollinarius, from what I could see, never really uh, recants his beliefs. He gets exiled, and then I think he gets brought back and then exiled again, which kind of reminds me of how Athanasius oh. was exiled five different times. So I think that he was like, oh, they finally saw the light, and then they exiled him again. And I I think he died during his second exile um, around the age of shoot like 70 80 80 oh, dang. okay he's pretty old so uh so yeah that's uh that's our boy there but it's i don't know it's interesting it's it it kind of just keeps returning me to this fact that like this Christian hatred of the physical body has just existed for so long because mm-hmm. we think of it in Gnosticism and I think that even what we see today mm-hmm. is really Gnostic it's really you know kind of the Neoplatonist approach mm-hmm. but e- but this is just saturated in this idea that like Jesus could not have been an actual person he had to be a person that was in some way hollowed out and replaced with god but he couldn't be a guy who learned who thought of things who experienced the weaknesses of the human state because that's just too too muddy Mm -hmm. um and yeah i i think it's a warning against uh deductive theology which is this a, a way of doing theology where we say, well, if this thing is true, then this also must be true. Right. Uh, but that's not how that's not how theology works because all revelation comes from God. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to say something is true, it has to be because God said it was true. Yeah. And uh, that's not how God has revealed himself. That's not who scripture and the apostles attest Christ to be. Um so yeah, these a lot of these heresies I think that, that we see in the early church and even today, a lot of stuff that's heretical and or just unhelpful yeah. is um, a a oftentimes stemming from that kind of deductive reasoning yeah. uh, that doesn't just take scripture at face value and is completely uh, like um, unwilling to have mystery like you said be an element Mm -hmm. it's not just the orthodox i think our lutheran friends have um a a good uh comfortability with mystery as well where it's like well this is what scripture says Mm -hmm. it leaves us with what feels like a logical dilemma sometimes but um it's a mystery yeah and i and i think like you know we it's like when you try to fill in a gap in reasoning 
you subconsciously it's like a hydra scenario like you cut off one head but three heads come back in its place like this dude may have solved a logical problem but you you got to think like you said um if if he wasn't truly human he he could not have been a son of adam which makes the proclamation of the gospel of the good news of a redeemer that happens literally right after the fall it makes that bunk uh we also need in jesus someone who's able to perfectly satisfy the law through his wholesome willful intentional obedience Mm -hmm. like it's not really the obedience of a perfect man if it's actually just the god mind kind of pulling the strings Mm -hmm. um or even just like yeah we we need we need Jesus's humanity in order for him to be a true high priest and brother for us. I mean Hebrews says that Jesus was fully subjected to every temptation and didn't sin. If he didn't have a reasoning mind, then he couldn't be tempted. And if he couldn't be tempted, then he wasn't tempted in every way because the God mind can't be tempted. And yeah. so you've solved a problem, but you've created so many more and really where where I feel like my pastoral heart is kind of pulled by this stuff is it's not just the intellect it's like are we depriving the people who fall for this heresy of believing something really rich about the love of God mm. like are we like if Jesus is just this like disembodied savior who has no brotherly literal flesh and blood connection to his people then what does that mean for someone who's just going through a, a, a sucky season of life who feels like Jesus can't in any way identify with mm-hmm. them like yeah, I mean, I I remember, what was it? I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who was really struggling with his faith. And I basically told him, um, well, well, God understands what you're going through. Like God has experienced suffering through through his through his life as as Christ. Like he knows what suffering is and what loneliness is. And he was like, No, he doesn't. Like that was just Jesus. Like mm. that was that was Jesus, but there was a degree of separation there. Um and like even then, like he was God. He didn't really feel anything that bad because, mm. you know, his divinity softened the blow. And it's like, no, like we need to believe this so we can see God in the full picture so that we can like reap the fruits of knowing that God. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, I can't remember if I, if I just quoted this on an episode recently or not, but I was doing some, uh, reading on what Bovink had to say about, um, like the Chalcedonian, uh, work that was done talking about like the two natures of Christ. So like, oh, yeah. two wills, fully God, fully man, uh, will comes from your nature. So Jesus had two wills. That's orthodox, uh, thing to say and and bob inc um reflecting on that uh says something to the tune of um the the incarnation of god is not something that we have to intellectually solve but we receive in faith mm-hmm. um, now he said that after having affirmed you know the orthodox creeds and talking about how it's important that we know that Jesus had two wills for the exact reason that you were just saying with your Mm -hmm. friend. Um, But it's also not something that we have to like scientifically or mathematically 
solve in our minds in order to receive it by faith. Right. And that, you know, we were we were just talking before we uh we hit play about Eugene Peterson and I've been recently reading through his uh his biography. Um, Eugene Peterson was someone who understood the beauty of experiencing God, like explicitly through prayer, but he was someone who really emphasized that a believer is meant to experience God, not just to think of him. And I think that one of the reasons why mystery is preserved in the theology of our faith is because once we've, you know, worked out all of the weird, awkward angles and the nooks and crannies of Christian theology, it's very easy to just be like, yeah, we got it. God is God is fully textbookized and, you know, written down and we're and we're good to go. But like if if you like it's like our stewardship over the world makes us want to study it and observe it and make it plain and clear. But we can't do that with God because we're not stewards over God. Mm-hmm. Like there is a degree to which we will never be able to fully write down and document the observable traits of God in a full and compelling way because God is not to be God is to be studied as he is presenting himself but we can't like create that subordinate relationship that we have with a you know a petri dish under a microscope and i think that understanding that mystery compels us to want to experience him rather than just observe him or think of him from a distance right because it's a it's a never ending uh, field of study Right. You don't finish learning about God and then that's it. Mhm. And and the beauty of it is like we learn of God as he's offering himself to us. Like we're we're not just, you know, picking leaves off of the God tree and, you know, doing sketches in our little notebook. Like we are like our study of God is a byproduct of the relationship that we have of him, mm. um, which I think is exactly that's how he wants to be known, not as some, you know, cold scientific, you know, research topic. Yep. So, amen. Yeah. I don't know. That's good where stuff, I'm at. dude. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. All right, friends. Well, that's uh, that's a little little chit chat about docetism or docetism. I don't know. Tell us in the comments. We don't know how to freaking say it, honestly. But we'll be back with some more heretical goodness real, real soon. <laughs> God you bless you. Later, guys. Later.